Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Chris. Welcome to season two of Growing Beyond. I'm really excited to share this interview with Alex Pfeiffer. We met at his gorgeous yoga studio on the east side of Madison, the Main Street Yoga Center, to talk about yoga. Alex knows a great deal about yoga and essential tools for authentic living. In our time chatting, you'll get some depth. You'll get some discussion about the history of yoga, embracing life in the physical realm, but we also talk about finding meaning, building resiliency, and the allure and inconvenience of peak states, and so much more. We go a lot of places and it's really fun. I know him because he was my teacher in the yoga teacher training that I took, 21st century yoga on the mat. And uh, you don't have to go through a yoga training to really learn that yoga can do cool things for you. Um, And you'll find that Alex's classes and teaching and the teachers that he has selected at this studio are really special. If you're in the area, you can join in on classes for a special rate through November 1st as they roll out their opening. And for a further discount, enter the code growing-beyond and you'll get half off of that. So it's an amazing deal. There's really no good reason not to do it. And their website is MainStreetYogaCenter.org. If you want to read more about my own take on yoga and the transformational experiences that the training that amazing training had in my world, go to Patreon, patreon.com backslash solving everything. I will say that Alex um, sits with both me and my creative bud, Andy, who's never taken a yoga class. So you kind of get a little bit of both worlds. And when we jump in, we're talking about reducing food (laughs) down to nutrients, but missing the wisdom of the big picture of what food is. So Um, that's off mic and Alex goes on to talk a bit more about reductionism and then that's where we begin. So please enjoy Alex Pfeiffer. But I mean, I think that there's, um, you know, things like reductionism reductionism, and like evolution of culture and evolutionary principles, those are things that I think are vital in terms of 21st century understanding. And like a lot of what I'm trying to do with yoga is uh, bring it into a 21st century uh, understanding. Because it's an ancient practice and it's, I mean, do you know how old the practice is? Has it been measured? Um, well, it depends on what you mean by yoga. I mean, some people would say that it's somewhere around six to 8,000 years old in terms of anthropologists. I mean, you always have people within the tradition who are either somewhat loose on what their definition of it is in order to extend the range or uh, just have a pride in saying it's been around since the dawn of time. Um, which you could make kind of an argument for that, but I mean, really, we first see the the phrase used in the Vedic texts, and it looks very different as a practice at that time. Um, 
it really kind of comes into its own with the Upanishads and then into the classical age of yoga, which we're probably looking at at that point, about uh, 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. And it doesn't really start to take on a lot of like postural aspect that most of us know it by today until roughly a little over a thousand years ago with Hatha Yoga. And even at that point with Hatha Yoga, there's not a multitude of postures the way that you would see in a class. And it's not as posturally dominant as you would see in more of a, a, a yoga studio type class. It's a good phrase, posturally dominant. Yeah. <laughs> Can you say more about what you first said about trying to bring it into the 21st century? What do you mean? Um, well, yoga historically, through most of its lifespan, was something that you do in an ashram. And so it's the kind of thing that would attract the sort of person who is perhaps looking to get away from some of the unavoidable conditions of life, uh, like falling in love with someone, them dying or being really sick. Mm-hmm. or Monastic sort of discipline? Traditionally, more so. Okay. Um, and so, and also just someone who is uh, perhaps seeking some very extraordinary states of consciousness. And as a wellspring of having developed a lot of those capacities, uh, yoga has certainly had a long time to do that. And so it has some, if you will, relatively tried and true methods. At the same time, um, you know, what yoga is today is, is offering a lot of benefit to people who aren't looking to just live in an ashram. Mm-hmm. And that nature of being uh, what we would call a householder is different. And um, yoga has been moving in that direction, I, from what I can tell, since the classical age. Like a lot of the tantric influence on yoga was an influence of embracing life in the physical realm, not all at once. It's a very long process. Uh, I look at what I'm doing as a continuation of that, as well as integrating some of the Western wisdom into yoga, uh, because I do think that every culture, including our own, has blind spots as well as uh, places where its focus has been for an extended period of time. And oftentimes, uh, if a culture places its focus in a particular area over a long period of time, you do get a degree of insight and genius out of that. And I think where we're at now in yoga is a time to integrate the various geniuses. And one of those components is that for a lot of us that are practicing yoga, we're also in a really, uh, what's been called a hyper novel environment, which is to say, uh, if we're in an environment as human beings that's very different from our environment of evolutionary adaptation, we're in an environment that is novel. This is why, for example, um, something that is logically not a big deal, like public speaking, mm-hmm. suddenly becomes terrifying if, if you haven't conditioned yourself to it. Uh, for a lot of people, it is. Because in our environment of evolutionary adaptation, uh, if 
you it would be terrifying to be judged negatively by other people mm-hmm. it matters very little for the most part in our environment today but uh though it's coming back a little bit but uh mm-hmm. it's uh you know it's but it, it, you're talking about life or death when we're in more of a tribal environment because it would be impossible to survive without your group uh, you're at the mercy of tooth and claw and elements of nature that are impossible for an individual to to be able to uh, survive in. <clears throat> so, you know, there's we're not only in a novel environment today, but what's been called a hyper-novel environment by mm. evolutionary biologists, and um, which is to say, not only are we in an environment that is novel compared to what our hardwiring, if you will, would would adapt to, but we're in an environment that is changing even what our software would be able to adapt to. So for example, if you grew up in, if you were born in like 1880 mm-hmm. and lived a pretty good life, maybe you died in 1950 or 70 years old, you would have seen a lot of change in your lifetime. You would have seen things go from like horse and carriage to, yeah. So you'd have seen a lot of change, but most of your life probably you still could have had some degree of adaptation to the change. Now we're at a point where most of the things that we learn as children, even in incredibly, even in the best of circumstances, we had really wise parents and really wise teachers, Mm -hmm. uh, is obsolete by the time it's 20 years down the road. Like things are at such a hyper uh, pace of change that even the things we downloaded through our culture, through our family, and even in the best of circumstances are become largely counterproductive later on. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what's referred to as hyper novelty. I can't help but think of the religious traditions that people are losing touch with kind of gradually because maybe they don't, they can't keep up in a way. Can you say more about that? Well, like, is the Catholic Mass, the ritual of that, as satisfying as, say, a yoga practice? Does it, does it offer the same sort of uh, solace yeah. or opportunity to center yourself or calm yourself in a way like, to me, on a very basic level, I think back to the farmers that I grew up with who had all these body aches and did all this manual labor, and I thought, man, it probably would have been a lot better for us to go on Sunday somewhere and lay down on some mats mm-hmm. and stretch our sore bodies and get some massage and do some of this work on the inside through the body kind of spiritual discipline right? versus sit. Go kneel somewhere. And kneel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, but I mean, that served its purpose for a long time and I don't mean to totally denigrate it I just don't think that that model you know is coming with like you think that's obsolete is it is that part of the slowly Hmm. I mean look at the numbers I'm not I don't think I'm just making this up like recruiting young people into the priesthood and there's more challenges in that than than new yoga instructors Mm -hmm. being there there's more and more of those every day 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. You know. Yeah, I think. Were you gonna go? No, you. Um, I think. I mean, what you're pointing to is also a large part of what I see for not exclusively yoga's role, but one of the roles that is really needed for yoga moving into the future in the 21st century. Because um, what you're pointing to, I take in as what's commonly been called the meaning crisis. There's actually a very long and super geeky YouTube series (laughs) on this by John Verveke and just goes into incredible amounts of detail on it. And essentially what the meaning crisis refers to is that, yeah, there was uh, periods of time where things like what we might call the old time religion going to Catholic mass and religion being belief based and that's where you derive your meaning is uh, supplying that necessary nutrient to being human where meaning is oftentimes what the way I refer to meaning is that it's it's that which has you embrace suffering so for a lot of people they get meaning for for example from say having a family and having their kids and most people would easily embrace suffering to protect their child or to help their child in some way and so given that life is going to have suffering in it there's a couple ways we can work with suffering one is to liberate ourselves from suffering which is steeped in many of the wisdom traditions of like how do you free yourself from suffering a lot of that has to do do with developing capacities to unattach from things Um, and then there's also the question of okay given the inevitability of suffering particularly if you want to actually ever do anything or participate in the world probably the path of of being able to free yourself from suffering isn't going to be the most helpful most of the time actually being able to have a capacity for meaning to have your actions have meaning to have moment to moment have meaning to where you are willing to embrace suffering like the way that many of us easily would if we were to have to protect a child Uh, that we have that moment to moment so that suffering actually takes on a rewarding quality if we have a kind of meaning in our life. That's why you Mm -hmm. can't, I think, question the authority or the respectability of like a police officer, a soldier, a fireman. These people are leaning into it. The suffering? Yeah, potentially. Mm. Right. You know, the burning house is their target. And they're willing to put themselves in front of enemy fire for us and all of that sort of that's what it brings to mind well the meaning it's interesting because when you were talking about the traditional discipline being you went you pulled yourself out of culture in an isolated environment to practice yoga which feels like less suffering maybe not but it's certainly more peaceful than raising six kids and you know having to do everything you're husband tells you for women anyways you probably couldn't even get into those ashrams I don't know if they could let women in back then but is it the same meaning to have those practices in isolation in serene environments where you can garden and cook and meditate than it is to go out into the world and really see suffering around you and experience relationship hardships and hardship 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 and still feel like 
the practice is has value and the practice actually I feel like yoga at least the way I'm starting to understand it is maybe one of the only practices that feels like it could be timeless through these chunks of time that you're talking about what did you say novel hyper novel yeah because whatever it is about it it feels like um it does give you a sense of meaning and it also helps you cope with suffering somehow at the same time whereas doing it in isolation might not have the same weight of like this is meaningful work i'm doing here alone in this ashram with my garden Chris, I would also argue that the Beatles are timeless. <laughs> Thanks. But, but if I might really quickly, I was curious. I, I like the kind of condensed history that you gave of, of yoga. And I think uh, part of it, if we can get to how it moved west, um, I do th- see things through a musical lens. So I know that there was this period, and I have some personal experience actually of how when George Harrison started playing sitar and introducing the world to Ravi Shankar, and then uh, they meditated with the Maharishi. Bringing that over all of a sudden, I don't know if it was a, a trend of that time to some degree, but the novelty of this exotic Eastern practice, sort of some of these practices and, and sounds were, were introduced uh, in the West. And was yoga part of that? movement then? Or? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a couple things I want to double back on, but just to address that question in the in the short version, there's definitely a period of time, probably, um, I mean, you could date it a little differently, and I don't have a bunch of notes in front of me on this, so I'm not, I don't want to speak too firmly on it, but, you know, roughly probably 1800 is about when you start to see a lot of interest in cross-cultural um, commu- uh, experience and communication and curiosity and embracing the exotic. And by exotic, I just mean like that thing that occurs to us in this very like, it's strange, but it's also really attractive. Um, and uh, I think there are good reasons why it occurred to Westerners as exotic, that it would be strange, but also really attractive because there's there is a genius that was drilled into that was uh, not entirely absent from the West, but uh, certainly uh, perhaps dulled down in the common experience of most people. And so um, a lot of that movement, I would say, culminated in the 60s and 70s, particularly with just uh, in like most Western, certainly Anglophile cultures, there was a lot of openness and curiosity about kind of getting beyond the way that things had been traditionally done in the West. So uh, it really exploded then and has kind of like taken off within the West since then. And um, if I can double back to what you were saying, Chris, around the, uh, you know, the, the path of liberating myself from suffering and how that has played out traditionally versus embracing suffering through meaning. I think what I'm really going for is an integration of both paths, because it's not as if the first path was just all waterfalls and rainbows and things like that. I mean, for example, there's a lot of the stories about yogis sitting in the cave or on the mountaintop for years on end. And 
to some degree, those are stories meant to impart a kind of teaching to someone who wants to take on the tradition. But also there's something to it, too, in terms of literal practice. And it would be something like most of us relieve our suffering naturally through being in connection with other people and being with other people. And what happens when you take that away, when you isolate yourself in a cave? I'm sure nobody listening can, can you know, relate to that in the it's last two and a half years. Now. It is. Um, but when you isolate yourself in a cave, well, you've taken that away. And uh, it will make you much more keenly aware of the ways in which you have the possibilities of suffering. And so it's a way to, a lot of that tradition also is going to try to bring things up in you. Um, I had a, a Zen teacher, they kind of stopped doing this by the time I was training in Zen, but I had a Zen teacher who would talk about the old days and when you came to the, to the, um, to Seshin or to the dojo, uh, they would be training you and they would nitpick at you. They would just like, just like you're holding your fork a half an inch the wrong way or whatever, like, cause they had, it was very warrior zen kind of training. And so like everything was considered training to like how you held your fork, the order you ate your food in, um, you know, how you walk in line with other people in, in the space. And so, you know, he would talk about it and the purpose was to basically get under your skin like they were trying to piss you off. And part of the idea of it is that when you hear something like, you know, you can free and liberate yourself from suffering through these practices, the tendency is for our, in our more intentional self or what we might think of as the ego to be like, to kind of take on that facade, to take on like nothing bothers me. Uh, I am resilient. Project invulnerability. Yeah. And so for a lot of individuals who are new coming into the tradition, they would have almost can't help coming in with some of that because like we all have a natural and um, uh, tribal impulse to fit in with what look like the markers of the group that we're coming into. So even if everyone, even if you're coming in new and you have a lot of people in that Zen community that have developed a capacity to have a calmness to let things go, you might project that to fit in. And so one of the first things they would do with everyone was nitpick at them, just do little things. Sounds like hazing. Yes, I, th I think hazing is probably a bit of an adaptation on these lines of like an of it, ego check. And so the idea was to build that up where there's small enough things that the ego can say to itself, that doesn't bother me. You just keep adding it up, adding up until you're like, actually you have a hook in there. And maybe it's too subtle to see piece by piece, but eventually we're gonna add it up to where it's visible and then we work with it from there. So a lot of, you know, that's specific to the the Zen Buddhist tradition, but there are other elements within the yoga tradition too that are really designed to bring up awareness of some of these hooks we have in our system where suffering is possible and to be able to let go of those. So certainly in the tradition, it's not necessarily all 
waterfalls and Zen gardens and in the ashram. But that said, um, the ashram lifestyle is completely dedicated to this endeavor. And one, that means some practices don't translate real well for us in the 21st century. One of the examples that you've probably heard me give, Chris, is um, a lot in the yoga tradition. There's this focus on kundalini, and for lack of uh, getting too far into it, let's just say that that is, uh, you know, really meant to help propel you into a different state of being and consciousness. And a lot of times there's, a, there's almost like a whiplash effect uh, that we might call, uh, you know, diving into some of the uh, tensions that are in your nervous system that can cause you to have a bit of a, a hard time and a break for a while. Well, if you're in an ashram where people can take care of you for three, four weeks while you get your bearings back together, that's, uh, maybe that's a net positive, even though it's not great during those three, four weeks. But today, do I want to do that in a yoga class where somebody <laughs> has to go pay bills and, <laughs> and you know, be with their life? Like it, it it, there's a new set of circumstances to adapt to. So, um, you know, a lot of the practices, while they're helpful and they maybe need to be altered a little bit, titrated a little bit, so that they fit for people who are in a, a more of a householder lifestyle and also more in this hyper-novel environment that we find ourselves in today. Would you say it's fair, a fair kind of summary to, to say you've got to be a little bit careful with the depth of practices in a way, like how far you let people dive into something because you know, the consequences of that. Yeah, there's a pace of integration, I would say. Like, um, you can have, like, a. so not, not that I'm condoning this because I'm no expert in it either way, but, um, you know, somebody might take LSD or something to see what sort of human state is possible. One of the things with LSD, as I understand it, I'm no expert, again, uh, but, you know, it has parts of the brain talk to each other that have, don't usually communicate with each other. And so I know people who have had a bad time with it, and I know people who swear by it as a tool. And, um, but one is opening up again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things with that is, like, someone could have an experience from that substance, but it's, um, there's... Probably they don't want to be doing it every day or every other day um, because it takes time to integrate some of that experience into day-to-day -day life, into how do I brush my teeth? How do I communicate with my spouse? I think that's one of the most fascinating things I've heard about it, not to get on, off on a whole other tangent here, but just that it's self-limiting and people recognize. You don't need to tell a lot of people, like, maybe give this some time to... <laughs> process this and maybe never again actually yeah. and once is good sure as a matter of fact yeah but. and i think those kind of peak states if you will can be really helpful but they can also um create a sense of separation where it's like someone will crave the peak state because it's there's such a distance between their day-to-day -day life experience and that peak state and i think the freedom you're talking about from right maybe or the release or i forget how you phrased it of suffering yeah and I, to me, the ideal and what I always strive for as a yoga teacher is 
that there's that mostly you're you're getting you're always pushing a very light peak that can then quickly integrate and catch up to mm. um, for me that seems the most functional and honestly the most sustainable and for and unless people are planning to go live in ashram life for a year or two or something like that for most people that are just taking yoga classes that's really what is the most fulfilling and uh, brings the most to their life in terms of translating what they get in the yoga room out into i've heard you say something along the lines of coming to sort of like a transcendental or a transformational altered state is accidental but yoga or meditation can make you prone to accidents or yes. something like that yeah am i catching that so for someone it's weird it almost feels like um if you accidentally have a really profound experience where you're walking through your life in a little bit of an altered state for a few weeks and you have to maybe explain to the people around you <laughs> that yeah everything you know you look like you're in the garden of eden you can't go into a crowd or a library or a bookstore because it's the energy is too overwhelming or all the different ways that these states can kind of present like some people want to seek that out and it makes me think of um in raiders of the lost ark at the end when they the the ark of the covenant sort of everything comes out all at once and you can't look at it. You have to close your eyes because it or almost, it'll melt, your face it'll melt your face off. It kind of feels like that. You really don't want to have that kind of a huge, massive transcend. I don't, I'm not using the right words like transformational experience because even just getting a little tiny glimpse of it can be life changing and so profoundly altering that to open up the entire can all at the same time can be actually a little debilitating for for functionality is that am I getting kind of the gist of what you're yeah I mean and that's why you know if if again if you're in an ashram and people can take care of you for a few weeks you can you can probably handle it and you will be able to integrate it and it may in the net be a net positive um at at the same time you know part of the reason we seek these peak states even if it's not even what we realize peak we're doing state. that's a, the words I, was um, I mean why do people go to live shows when you could listen to music on your phone why do we uh you know why do we do some of the things like that that we do it's oftentimes that we're seeking these peak states and you know you wake up the next morning you feel freer you feel like uh a little more inspired about just living and doing what you do uh, there's good reasons why we seek these things. There's a, a part of ourselves that's nurtured by them. And so I definitely don't want to scare anyone off from peak states, but it's certainly true that, you know, if uh, I'm the more, either if I maybe I just have a personality that is just very blinded in one direction, or if I'm kind of depressed, the more depressed I am, maybe the the more I'm just like really trying to shove into like just having the most powerful peak state possible. Uh, that has, that, that can be a difficult way to go. It's, it may seem like a good idea at the time, but it takes time to integrate and uh, 
there's both a, a momentary freedom where things come easy, and then there's integration time. And sometimes that momentary freedom lasts for six months. But, th but then after that, it's like, <laughs> and you're like, this is easy. This is so simple. Yeah. Life is so simple. Like, uh, and, and you think it's going to last forever. Uh -huh. Your goal to integrate, though, earlier, mm -hmm. if maybe yeah. we could. Goal to integrate. Like, am I, am I understanding it right? And that the small peak that you talk about, sort of trying to sort of push towards that, but also practicing some sort of sacrifice or like holding certain positions in yoga, I would imagine, is literally leaning into suffering. Yeah. And you've got to, you're asking people to do things that are uncomfortable, but somehow that pushes them toward the peak. Yeah. Simultaneously. Well, it's, um, one of the things I would say yoga has going for it is it's, in part kind of like exercise which most of us are familiar with so there's a bit of a familiarity there and it's not like this dynamic doesn't isn't also in other exercise like if you haven't run for a while and you have to go for a run or something like you have to kind of embrace a kind of suffering but there's uh what i would say has put yoga on a unique track and what i think it's uh it's legacy is that's helpful to bring forward into 21st century life is that it's always in some way whether this was intentional or somewhat accidental always dealt with the human nervous system and the plasticity of it and so like one of the ways that I'll tell my students in class that yoga is different than just exercise is based on how you breathe so let's say we're in a challenging pose for a period of time, the typical instinct and even what is oftentimes encouraged in exercise, like if you're doing dumbbell curls, is as you get to that moment where things are getting difficult, it's maybe the last couple reps of it, the, your breath will tend to get very short, very quick, very shallow to get an adrenaline spike so that you can get those last couple reps in. And not necessarily speaking to whether that's a good thing or bad thing in the context of lifting weights. But in yoga, when we get to that point in a yoga pose, uh, one of the things I encourage my students to do is actually to work with their breath not doing that. So that we're not going into an adrenaline state or trying to spike the fight, flight, freeze so that we can learn and train to be with intensity and do so in a way where we don't get put back into like the reptilian brain response of fight, flight, freeze. The invitation being that there's something, there's a part of yourself that you can discover in those moments where you don't have to get into sort of those animal instincts of fight, flight, freeze to deal with your suffering or to deal with intensity, but there's something in yourself that can absorb the intensity, that can transmute the intensity, if you are able to stay out of the fight, flight, freeze. And that is a very valuable capacity to have because when we start having that capacity, um, we are more plastic in our nervous system, 
rather than being stuck in our in certain modes of being in certain responses in our nervous system we begin to have more openness and capacity for choice is one way to put it i sometimes don't like that because it infers a a way in which is like a little too heady i think compared to what the actual experience of it is but certainly more choice and certainly more uh capacity to feel intense moments or moments that at first seem insufferable in a different way and in doing so uh, there's inherent meaning that arises it's almost like an essence of meaning rather than meaning being tied to the types of what I would call crutches that most of humanity has used and most of us in the West have used for meaning, which is something like belief, identity is something like Catholic. Um, as a lot of those old religions that maybe were that crutch that were good enough for their time um, have started to decay. Uh, you know, I count myself among these people. I thought, I thought, I used to think this that, you know, you know, once we get rid of all this religious crap, you know what's gonna happen? We're gonna, we're gonna flourish as humanity and we're gonna figure this thing out. I think, you know, I'm taking that back now. Like, because <laughs> uh, what I see is actually, we need that meaning so badly. And without the tools to be able to engage each moment as meaningful through the transmutation of intensity, uh, what we tend to do is make religion out of other things. So now Marvel it's comics. Yeah. <laughs> Marvel comics, Republican, Democrat, like great quarterbacks. Ah, uh, interesting. Like just like what we've done now is we have multitudes of religion and they're probably even worse mm -hmm. in terms of being a mechanism for making meaning and, and uh, release of suffering in your own life than even the, the whatever the Catholicism or the old-time religion was mm -hmm. so I think it's vital that uh, we begin to avail ourselves to the capacities to be able to process and make meaning in real time in the 21st century because to some degree I mean I think the rate of change we're in will have to slow down at some point. I just don't think, I think we're going to be at a limit to handle it. Uh, but that said, like, there's a degree of it, which is just like, it's rolling down a hill. Like, you're not <laughs> going to stop it. So, um, um, uh, it's, it's whether or not it can sustain itself environmentally on sure. other levels. Certainly. Yeah. It doesn't seem sustainable. Do you think that what you were talking about with, uh, finding that space where you can endure hardship in a yoga class and not fall into your reptile brain and find that other kind of big mind piece that's like, no, I choose to breathe through this and I'm regulating my breath, not my reptile brain. And, and that, that somehow that practice alone offers its own meaning where does the meaning come in when you're um, training the nervous system that way? The tricky thing about this is it's very easy for us to, to 
think we might be in that space uh-huh. when we're not. I would say one of the signs that we are authentically in that space is that uh, we encounter things more sensitively and also less react reactively. For the most part, we tend to be sort of sensitive, but also more reactive. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> or we tend to numb ourselves to put on like this sense of poise. So one of the signs that we are in fact processing things through our nervous system is that we're two things at the same time that normally don't go together, which is experiencing more fully, more intensely, while at the same time uh, having a sense of equanimity, a sense of consistent stillness, a sense of there being an opening or clearing that is constantly there, even as intensity arises, as uh, moments of contraction or suffering arise. And when a person is in that state, which we're training in micro doses in something like a well done yoga class, then we tend to start to experience something that the traditions would refer to as pain without suffering, whether it's emotional pain without suffering. Suffering we tend to think of in the West as being just like frustration, negative emotions, uh, physical pain, things like that. When your cable goes out. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But what a lot of the Eastern traditions have, including yoga, have really dived into is that it is possible to have painful moments where you don't suffer, which is to say painful moments where the pain isn't causing you to contract or to be, uh, to like take it on as a kind of trauma. And in fact, like any traumas that you have had can actually unwind themselves. And so, you know, that is a state that we can micro train through something as simple as being in an intense pose for a minute and a half and learning to breathe without going into fight or flight. So in terms of how this loops back to your original question, which was about, you know, what does that have to do with meaning? And I haven't been forced to phrase this exactly before, so I'm stumbling through it a little bit. Make it catchy, man. (laughs) This is a bumper sticker. Go. Yeah. Um, We're going to make t-shirts afterwards, both. Most of us get meaning through things like uh, certain axioms we might have about life, like being resilient, helping uh, others, helping others, um, and those are good. Uh, but ultimately, because all of them involve a kind of measuring up, um, they can fail at times, ultimately because all of them are fraught with identity problems. Like if I get meaning through helping others, I identify as a good person. I may be close to hearing how I may have some blind spots around that, which becomes its own 
sort of spiral. Um, they're a little, they can be a little fraught. And I think one of the more profound experiences and insights that something like yoga can bring, and some people have had this just like backpacking and hiking in nature or uh, through other means, is that there's a sense of being, a sense of being alive, a sense of simply existing regardless of what else is coming into your experience of existence that is inherently meaningful regardless of all the thoughts all the axioms as much as those things may be helpful in navigating us in life the meaning in those pales in comparison to the the fact of existing and being alive and there's something about that and there I, I would love to have like a bunch of scientific studies for you to show this but it's that it doesn't be the tend to be the kind of thing that gets a lot of funding but there's something about that that really positions us in a place where the nervous system is more uh, adaptable in plastic where maybe i couldn't hear that thing before that may inferred that i may have a blind spot or uh, there's a way in which i'm not such a good person where i used to you know, gain meaning based on the idea that I am. What strikes me about what you just said is that uh, in the studies and the discussion around hallucinogenics and what their therapeutic purpose may be is that removal and destruction of the ego. How when those different parts of the brain start communicating with each other or whatever, they, they're not interested mm -hmm. in who you think you were yeah, or are or that's not trying to assert itself. It has nothing to do with this experience you're having and, and existence. Um, but I wonder too sometimes that maybe you have thoughts, either of you, about how our standard of living in America, when it gets hot, we have cool AC. When our drinks are warm, my refrigerator makes ice cubes for me. Uh, when I need to launder my clothes, I throw them in this machine and push a button and boom. We don't really have as much to struggle against, or we spend so much of our energy devising ways to avoid, reduce, you know, suffering or struggle or, you know. So the yoga discipline to me on some level seems to work against this trend where you're sort of inviting people, as you say, to introduce a little intensity. And when people do that, they're like, oh, I'm alive. Yeah. I'm being challenged <laughs> by something, maybe. Whereas, you know, we're just a little too accustomed to coasting through everything in maximum comfort. There's also a sense of having taken your training and experienced how you teach. It really does give you a feeling of when someone's teaching to that, which not all yoga teachers are, oh, it's really a discovery of like, I am so much more really than I knew that I was. And it's all this inner body. It's just like there, but we don't culturally necessarily know that it's there. So uh, yeah, doing laundry and doing the, the things day to day in our society that we typically do 
it feels like it's missing that attunement that um, it sounds like your your teaching in particular is hoping to sprinkle that into your students as you're teaching, bringing all this knowledge where, because I think if I'm not mistaken, some of the trainings that you did were way on the other end of the spectrum of like, like Bikram or something like suffering where, but your, your classes aren't necessarily like that. Am I thinking of the right training where it's like a hundred degrees and super intense? Oh yeah. Yeah. All of that. Just imagining someone advertising that suffering from four to six. <laughs> Enjoy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they maybe tried to get at that inner body that way. And um, from all the things that you, you speak about and the way that you teach and have taught others to teach, it's really about a gentler access to those states and like embracing the nervous system uh-huh. as our nervous systems live in a culture now that's way overstimulated pretty much all the time. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we could do three hours on how the Bikram orientation Mm. is pretty fucked up. (laughs) Um, But beyond that, I, um, part of the reason I prefer a more gentle orientation, which I actually notice a part of me kind of, box at that a little bit because there's something about like uh playing it overly safe can be its own problem and i wouldn't describe your classes as gentle either like yeah there's difficulty and challenge yeah but i know what you mean and i would say so to, to go to your example with the you know my first yoga training was a Bikram training because that's the yoga that I started with. It's what, uh, it's the yoga that I had my first experience of not having back pain with, which was what got me mm-hmm. into yoga in the first place. And just so I kept following that thread. And um, the when I was in my Bikram training, they didn't heat the room to 105 degrees, which is the the formula. So if you go to... Uh, a serious hot yoga studio. It's going to be 105 degrees. It's always 105 degrees. That's what the formula says to do. At the Bikram training, it was 120 degrees. And um, there's definitely a way in which I would say there is that element of embracing the suffering that comes from that because it's like, I remember the first class I did in the space at that training and I was feeling wiped after like two out of 26 poses and I'm like how in the hell am I going to get through (laughs) nine weeks of this doing this twice a day I've done like two poses and I'm already wiped and um, there is something helpful in that that maybe is akin to like running a marathon or doing 108 sun salutations where you do get to a point where it feels like you have nothing. And then that's where you really learn something about yourself. That's where you really can get, because all the ego artifice of like, I'm gonna plow through this, I'm gonna do this thing, it's, it's wiped itself out. You have to lean on something that's a little bit deeper in those moments. So I do think there's value in a richness there 
What could possibly be deeper than a huge ego? <laughs> <laughs> well, the other side of that is is the ego thing, which is definitely by the end of the training, like a lot of us were like, well, we're doing 120 degree yoga. And so it can also take on that um, quality to it. So one of the things that I do find when it's all about those intense kind of experiences or intense austerities is that it, it can develop a sense of separation in the self that might manifest as ego. It might manifest as um, I'm this type of person or that type of person. And mostly what I want to do is bring the whole human being along, not just one part of the human being. And it's much easier to do that if we, um, if we're not, how do I want to say this? I find it's much easier to do that the more that one type of moment flows into another type of moment. Maybe that's what you mean by gentle, which is that there isn't like suddenly this shock of one different type of moment. And then when that turns off is all sort of, you know, 120 degree class, you can only do that for so long or intense experience happens, then uh, it's gone. And so, um, and not to say there can't be value in that or that I don't even employ that sometimes, but if that's a lot of what's being done, it's, uh, if there's not a sense of continuity where one type of moment flows into another type of moment and someone can sense that continuity, it's very difficult to have a continuity of feeling of taking yoga outside the classroom and into life. Interesting. I'm wondering if then in your class, if your ability to read the room, as it were, um, like you come in with a plan, but maybe you see people struggling in some way that you didn't anticipate, you adjust or how do you, how do you handle that? Um, I think I handle it like anybody who's, uh, been at their craft a while does like it's, it's, there's, I have a plan when I come in to teach most of the time and uh, have an intention. If for no other reason that, uh, you know, if you're in a position of leading something, generally, even if you don't even follow anything that was your plan or intention, if you just have one, people feel it. Like I would assume if you go play a show and you don't have a set list or something, like, and you're just like, well, just play whatever. Like, mm -hmm. it kind of has this quality that doesn't draw people in as much. Be just because you don't have this sense of vision that you're coming in with. Mm -hmm. And I would say likewise as a yoga teacher. And sometimes I don't end up doing anything from the plan because there is a reading the room. There is a being adaptable. There is a following your intuition that has to happen. But I find a lot of that works better if there's also an intention that I'm coming in with. And maybe the song list isn't quite the right parallel, but I'm sure there's parallels you can think of. Sure. Yeah. No, definitely having a set list. Uh, you don't want to have that moment in front of your class where you're just kind of searching for something and it's awkward and the flow of what's happening is broken. And, you know, just having some do, you know, being prepared enough to even just have a selection of songs that you can reference and, and then communicate a certain sort of confidence to the people that are looking at you to lead them. 
yeah. or entertain them somehow. That is, but it's so much unspoken, that energy, uh, you know, the yes. transfer between our teacher and student or yeah. performer and audience, it's, uh, you know, doesn't seem like an exact science. Right, yeah. Well, Chris will tell you that in our yoga teacher training, we do some we do some weird things. Like we don't we certainly learn a lot of technical aspects of yoga practice and technical aspects of of teaching because there are certain ways you can phrase how you cue that will carry through much more uh, easily than if you just haphazardly form your cue. So there is there are techniques, there are things that are just like here's how to do it. Practice doing it that way. But also there's a lot of elements of teaching yoga and I think of most any kind of interactive craft, be it being a musician or uh, relating to your family, like any kind of interactive craft has this element that you're talking about to it. And so we'll do things in the training like learn how to sit with attention in ourselves and another person at the same time. We'll do things like just things that seem uh, overly simple and unuseful, like the noticing game. We'll start a lot of uh, weekends where uh, you'll pair off with someone and you'll say, I'm arriving here with, and I'm noticing, and hearing that I'm noticing, and hearing that I'm noticing, and people go back and forth with this. And if someone hasn't done, who's listening hasn't done this kind of thing before, it sounds trite, it sounds maybe stereotypical of a weird feely thing you would do Maybe in a yoga training. slightly less ridiculous than acting exercises. Yeah. Or some of these other things that right. artists go through, though. And but the thing is, it gets you into a state where you're um, becoming aware of that field that you're talking about, where it isn't an exact science. It's We experience it, oftentimes the metaphors we use is it's a vibe or it's a vibration or it's an intuition. Uh, there's lots of ways that we can state it, but one of the great things from the archive of the Eastern traditions and yoga, and particularly the way that um, they have integrated into the West, in um, I know that you've had some podcasts on circling, and circling is a good example of this, is we, we can actually train ourselves to become more sensitive to that intuitive vibe of whether it's being at the head of a yoga class, being on stage, we can train our capacity for that. And um, that is an invaluable tool, I think, not only for a yoga teacher, but anybody who's not in a cave. <laughs> <laughs> but tracking back to your comment earlier about, you know, most of us don't experience extreme ranges of temperature because we have AC and heat and uh, we have warm showers constantly and we most of us have food that is exciting to the taste buds a lot of times uh, we definitely in our time of abundance and in hyper novelty have the capacity to be very comfortable most of the time and that's nice that's great i don't know that i would trade that for living thousands of years ago but at the same time uh, what we might recognize with that, and this is the yin and yang and what a lot of the Eastern traditions teach, is that while there are obvious upsides to all of this, there are, there's also a downside. And the downside is that as our nervous system 
begins to have very short ranges of things it's comfortable in. Maybe it's only comfortable with certain palatable foods, hyper palatable foods if they're processed. A lot of people get addicted to those things because it's difficult to be with eating broccoli because it tastes like eating grass if you're used to pop processed foods. Um, then you've got to digest it. Yeah. So um, there is there is certainly we're in environments where there's a narrowing of our nervous system's capacities. I think if we recognize that we can we can actually get the best of both worlds where if we for example like I have a practice where I will take cold showers for a month or uh, maybe I'll take a month where uh, I will eat things that I wouldn't usually eat purely for nutritious reasons um, and you know, none for taste or anything like that. Uh, if we can begin to condition our nervous system to have more range, that's one way we could look at this process, then we can actually begin to take those upsides of having things that are very pleasurable while not incurring so much of the downside and this is also a lot of people's experience with yoga where it's like as you really get into the heart of what yoga is doing not only does it give us a capacity to be with things that are uncomfortable and do so in a way that is meaningful but it also gives us the capacity to enjoy things more because one of the things you notice is if you're always eating very hyper palatable foods uh, over time, those foods begin to have less and less impact on your pleasure. If you're always in comfortable range of temperature after a while, uh, you don't experience pleasure from, oh, it's so nice and cool in here. Oh, it's so warm in here. Um, it actually dampens our capacity for pleasure over time as well. And this is one of the things we aim to do with yoga practice, which is to open the nervous system so that we can both embrace things that are uncomfortable because there is certainly long-term benefit to that and also not have this narrowing of our nervous system where we reciprocally narrow both our range of comfort and we're also hurting our own capacity for pleasure as well. Why, of a good thing. why do some yoga teachers not know anything about this? And like, how can you make a mediocre yoga teacher just kind of teaching shapes? How can you still allow yourself to get this kind of meat and juice out of a class? Is it necessary to have this sort of fundamental understanding of of what it means or what it what the implications for your life beyond it do you have to articulate all of that to benefit from it probably not but i don't know um <laughs> i i kind of like the way you phrase the question because this is i get a i get this type of question consistently through my training like probably through the last 15 years i've consistently gotten the question that starts with why don't most yoga teachers um, and I'm never quite sure how to answer that. I should probably contemplate on this for a little while more, <laughs> but, um, 
So, I mean, do yoga teachers come out of whatever training they get, basically just teaching shapes? Or maybe even they do get some expertise in terms of working with injuries, anatomical alignment, and so on, but just don't have a lot of the the inner world experience of what's going on in the yoga process. Um, that's certainly true. Um, I think luckily yoga comes from a tradition of working with the nervous system. The ancient yogis wouldn't have called it that, but that's essentially what they were doing. And even if what a yoga teacher might teach who isn't as connected to that inner process is teaching some poses and breathe in arms up breathe out arms down breathe in upward dog breathe out downward dog mechanical instructions yeah um there's still a micro percentage of what they're carrying through in that practice that is still connected to the nervous system so i do think you know, sometimes I also get this question around real yoga, quote, real yoga versus not real yoga. Mm-hmm. I don't really see it that way. I think it can live on a spectrum, mm-hmm. like even within that very mechanical kind of way of teaching with someone who's never learned as a student any differently. Mm-hmm. Um, people still get open. They still have an expansion of sense of self. It may not be as deep as it could be. Mm-hmm. But there's still a bit of that legacy in the practice of working with the nervous system mm-hmm. that can't be totally gotten away from unless someone's really trying hard to. Um, you know, why is it that most, well, I, I don't know. I mean, we could, I don't know that the question is super interesting to me. I just try to uh, help the people that come to me to learn and, um, you know, I am, there is definitely, I would say, to put it negatively, a lot of hand-wringing in the yoga community about what's real yoga. We need to protect real yoga. Hmm. Um, I am less concerned about it because I find that when most people discover a better way of opening up, a better way of allowing something of a deeper self to show up in their life, when they have more access to their own peak experiences and inspiration, when they have deeper sense of meaning, um, it's not the first thing they gravitate to the most easily, but when they get the hit of it, they will automatically gravitate to it. So I think I do come in with a certain kind of faith and trust in people's adaptation in that direction where it's offered and to me it just feels like kind of a waste of my efforts to worry about what the hell other people are doing with the practice so much I mean I certainly want to see yoga thrive but you know my primary uh my primary contribution I think is in me just seeing who's in front of me who wants to learn something and uh putting channeling my focus into that and uh if someone else down the road is inhale arms up exhale forward bend inhale you know going through that then i have to assume that people are getting something out of that and to the degree they're not that it 
could be done in a way that is more deepening for them, they're probably more likely to find that deepening way because they took that class that was inhale, arms up, exhale, forward, bend, inhale, you know, than they would if they had never even come across it in the first place. So to me, it's all part of uh, a flow that's moving in a direction. Mm -hmm. And I'm not gonna chastise the part of the flow that's at the beginning and maybe not, you know, it's like chastising uh, the, a part of like where the origin of the Mississippi is where the water's kind of sitting in a pool and it's kind of stinky and it's like moves every once in a while and eventually makes its way into the origin of the river. Chastising that versus like downriver in Missouri somewhere yeah. uh, for being less of a river. Like it's still part of the flow. It's still part of the movement. Um, and Water's just a stagnant, stinking pool. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. I have a, that made me think of a, a different question um, about, you were saying like for the first couple thousand years, there wasn't movement attached to yoga. Did I get that right? Before Hatha? Right. Um, to a degree. I mean, this is all, we're trying to condense thousands of years into yeah. simple ideas here. And um, anytime we do that, mm -hmm. we're going to be a bit reductionist, which I think is okay if we are understanding that's what we're doing. So some people would contend that there's been movement and posture all along, and to some degree that is not untrue. But what is mostly true is in terms of putting yoga together into a fully coherent system where different aspects of practice work together in a synergistic way, that is more new in terms of introducing things like asana and yoga posture today. Mm. Um, in terms, it's not that those things weren't exactly around, but in terms of what we see in the documentation in the history and the ancient texts, they're not as much integrated together into uh, a fully synergistic coherent system. So for example, in Patanjali's yoga, which is the eight limbs, and that's what a lot of people come to know yoga by, um, almost too much so, I would say, although that's starting to change. Um, because if you ask some, you'll oftentimes hear people say things like the yoga sutras. Why are you mm -hmm. following the yoga sutras? Um, what they generally mean is Patanjali's yoga sutras or the sutras from the classical period of yoga. There are lots of texts of yoga sutras. Like you probably want to be more specific about which sutras you're talking about. Which limbs are you talking about? There are even like three branches of Hatha yoga. One has four limbs, one has seven limbs. Another has five limbs, like um, there's lots of variations on these. But if we look at the yoga that dominated and was really a response to Buddhism in India, so 500 BC roughly in the classical age, they do have asana as one of their limbs. But in terms of looking at the histories and the texts, Asana was essentially six different positions. So there were six asanas and five of them were like seated positions for meditation. Mm. So dominantly Patanjali's system was a, a system of, that was oriented all around meditation. 
you learned how to sit physically. That was asana. You learned how to breathe well or use breath in a way to propel yourself into a, 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 a state that would be helpful for your meditation because sometimes it's hard to just sit down and meditate. You might want to change your state up a little bit with your breath. So they, they, it did these things, but it, it wasn't integrated into the variations of shapes that you would see in, say, a yoga class today, if you just go to a yoga studio, really until Hatha Yoga. And even at that time, there was l less emphasis on the, on, the very, on the variety of shapes that you would use and how you would use them. So it's definitely become a much more physical practice over time. And certainly there's also groups in the yoga community that have um, a discomfort with that. that. Somehow we're not doing real yoga mm. or in yoga classes in the West or all this Western yoga. And uh, you'll hear a lot of language around that. But I think if we understand it, it's a good thing. Like it's, it's a good thing that we have that yoga has morphed into something that I think is more accessible for people. Like if I am walking down the sidewalk with you and I'm like, hey, do you want to go do this thing where we, uh, we wash our noses out and cough up some salt water and then we're going to sit I'm for <laughs> a day and a half and uh, we're going to just sit still and uh, meditate you in like you're gonna get many fewer takers with that mm -hmm. than like hey let's go move around it's kind of like exercise and uh, you'll feel better when you're done mm -hmm. so I think that accessibility is um, a really important development in yoga again coming out of the more ascetic tradition and into more of a householder tradition and accessibility isn't everything in my book because Generally speaking, there is a trade-off with the more accessible you want to be to more people. Uh, for people that haven't gone through that initial accessibility, um, they may be prohibited from, say, more intense practices or practices that practice in a more subtle way. Does it get diluted? It can get diluted. Kind of sounds like yeah. writing for the masses. That's the downside. Like and you know one of the things i mean we're recording right now in main street yoga center which is this new studio i've opened up and mm -hmm. hopefully when uh, everybody listens to this even if you listen to it in 10 years it's still open and thriving mm -hmm. um you know one of the things i've gone through with all my teachers and i specifically have hired teachers who understand this which is we want to find the sweet spot be between being psychologically accessible and available to people doing things that aren't so foreign that they get it, they want to come back to it, they want to do more of it, um, but not only striving for packing the room, not only striving for what's the most popular thing to do. And I do think that's a way in which some of yoga classes in the West, particularly with some of these more kind of like franchise type of yoga studios, um, have gone where it is all about how many people can we get in here mm. and um, martinis afterwards yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's where some depth can be sacrificed and so the orientation that I have to teaching yoga and what I've specifically hired 
teachers who know understand is that it is important to be psychologically accessible. You want to help uh, a mom from Kansas. You want to help a f person who has worked on farm equipment their entire life. You want to help them translate yoga to their life just as much as the person who has the henna tattoos and uh, has the ohm shirt that she comes in with every day. Good luck um, explaining self-care to the farmer, yeah. by the way. But I mean, that's a... That's a separate thing. When I hear you speak about the tradition, I don't, if you had more to say on that, I didn't mean to cut you off, but it, it's reminding me of like martial arts traditions and some of the stories I've heard about. Not to bring Bruce Lee into this, but when Bruce Lee opened a studio in San Francisco, people were like, purists were like, ah, it's not Kung Fu. Mm. And, and uh, you know, it, it brought the, the, with so many different practices and branches and respect for the tradition of what you obviously have and the way that you can cite you know, how it's evolved. Is there room for innovation? Are people creating new mm -hmm. poses and introducing new things? And do you feel like that's something that you're interested in or not so much? Uh, yeah, I mean, that is something I'm interested in. I think there are things that are innovations to yoga that are specifically due to it coming West. There are certainly Western innovations in yoga and um, there are innovations that I don't know if they're unique to me, but I, as far as I know are unique to me in terms that, um, that I think I've brought to what I teach that revolve less around innovating types of practices as they do how various practices synergistically work off of each other. Mm. And also how do we integrate this, um, this polarity that I was talking about between meeting students where they're at and inviting them in and creating an inviting experience and class for them while at the same time not sacrificing possible depth that's available. And so I think the big way that I have brought in teachers to do that is that they understand that you want to build rapport and, uh, and just a sense in the student that this is something I connect to a lot of the classes that are a, a little bit more superficial do that because they're clearly bringing people in. People are connecting to it in some way. But I think as you build a type of rapport or uh, trust or capital with students as a yoga teacher, my view is not only do you have an opportunity, but you have an obligation as a teacher to spend that capital. And so what I mean by that is the way I see my duty as a teacher is it's to help students connect to yoga. And maybe we do some things that are very simple, very easy to access. I build up the trust and then I spend that trust. I spend it saying, okay, you guys seem to trust me. This is all in the implicit. I don't actually say that, but uh, I can sense I have your trust now. Not if you agree. Uh, so you guys seem to trust me. Let's try this thing that uh, might seem a little boring at first or a little weird. Let's try this out and see what you think. And I spend that, and then I build up more capital and spend it. And I think that's really the way as a yoga teacher that you can, I think, hit the sweet spot between being psychologically accessible, having a big span of students that can connect to what you're teaching, 
but not leave them hanging in that initial step or the superficial layer. There's nothing wrong with the superficial layer. You have to go through the superficial to get deep. Uh, but are you also inviting them deeper? Because I, and I think there are a lot of teachers that don't understand this because one of the common things I see on yoga teacher forums, for example, is like, how do you re-inspire yourself? How do you keep your inspiration up as a yoga teacher? And to me, the answer is really simple, which is you connect your students to depth, the depth of the practice, the depth of who they are within themselves. Um, if you do that, you'll have no problems with being inspired as a yoga teacher at all, where people tend to not to feel uninspired as yoga teachers is when they're only teaching to the surface level and they're not really bringing students deeper because it's inherently rewarding to go on that trip with somebody. Do you feel it in the room? Like your intuitive sense, it's like a, a invisible hum when people mm -hmm. have accessed that deeper point or is it through feedback, verbal feedback? Both, maybe. Yeah, a bit of both. I mm -hmm. think um, there's a degree of which it is intuitive, but also I've been teaching for almost 20 years, mm -hmm. right? So most of us have, we are naturally intuitive beings. And most of us develop our intuitions in environments in which has had, where we've had both rapid feedback and have spent a lot of time. So like you talk to a nurse who is doing her initial rotations out of nursing school, she's probably gonna have to do things more by the book. Um, you talk to a nurse who's been in the field for 25 years, they probably have intuitions left and right about mm -hmm what direction to go with particular types of patients. And they have um, feedback coming through their nervous system that they don't even know where it's coming from. Uh, most of us tend to get intuition, intuitions in areas where we have experience. So I'm fortunate enough at this point, I've been teaching long enough that I, that I have those intuitions. And I think other teachers will develop them as well as they, go, as they teach over time and specifically teach with keeping accessibility with depth in mind. If you've only ever taught to span or the number of people that you can connect to the practice but never go deeper, you're probably not going to develop intuitions on what's deeper, where are people opening up. Um, so I certainly have those intuitions. That said, uh, just like everybody else, my intuition isn't perfect. And um, uh, I think when I follow it most of the time, it most of the time is correct for most people. That said, I've certainly been surprised by people coming up to me after class and being like, man, the last 10 classes for me were just, you know, something different. And I had no idea. So um, I think both happen for sure. Hmm. Can you um, introduce yourself and tell us who you are? Sure. Um, so my name is Alex Pfeiffer, and I am a yoga teacher in Madison, Wisconsin. I've been teaching in Madison, Wisconsin for roughly 20 years and running a yoga teacher training for a little over a decade. And currently, as we are recording this, I'm opening up Main Street Yoga Center in the space of what used to be Main Street Yoga, which I is a studio that I had some involvement with, and 
uh, talked to Jim Manos, who ran that studio, and um, he gave the blessing on carrying the name forward. I think it's a space that's had a great history. And that's how I come by you today. Awesome. I took uh, your teacher training. It was fantastic. I talk about the things I learned there, and I'm still absorbing the information and trying to practice it regularly. Um, timing was excellent because it, I finished right before COVID, so I had a whole bunch of tools to kind of get me through some of those really tricky times. Um, I'm really excited that you are opening a physical space because one of the great losses during that time was I couldn't quite get on the Zoom train. And there's just really nothing like being in the room with other people who are doing yoga. And uh, so I'm really excited that you're here. And I'm I'm just really looking forward to what you'll be offering here because it sounds like you're doing some circling here and some ecstatic dance. Was I seeing that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll be doing a number of activities here. I think what I'm trying to do is create a best of both worlds uh, situation for a yoga studio. Mm -hmm. So there's like your classic membership-based yoga studio where there's lots of similar relatively... Um, psychologically accessible kinds of classes like nothing too super weird and um, <laughs> that you can get into and do there's also the kind of yoga studio that is usually a little bit more disjointed different teachers doing very different things and uh, inviting kind of their own flavor of, of depth to the yoga studio and um, the second one has a difficult time being financially viable in most environments I find which is too bad because they offer something really great. And what I'm hoping to do is to bridge the best of both worlds, both to have a space that uh, anybody who is of curious mind and willing to just go through the practice with their body can find something incredibly valuable in a variety of classes and they don't have to do anything super strange or out there or anything from the novice if i may ask really quickly yeah to people who feel like i'm not flexible i don't have the right kind of body for this everybody who does yoga looks so very fit and yeah. whatever else like what do you say to that well i think there's a trap there that you're referring to which you could take if we just take the grammar of what you're saying okay and replace the words you're kind of saying the same thing like i don't lift weights because i'm too weak to lift heavy objects or um i uh i don't eat healthy food because i'm not a healthy person you know there's a grammar that goes because i don't have the thing that this activity cultivates that i i shouldn't do that activity therefore i'm not i'm not a fit for that sort of activity or I, I'm not the type of person who does that activity um, is I would say an error and uh, I would just invite someone who is thinking that to think of it in those ways that I talked about like lifting weights well you lift weights to build strength you don't have to lift 100 pounds you can lift three pounds you can lift two pounds you can't lift two pounds lift one pound 
like the point of the activity is to cultivate something. And certainly flexibility is one of those things that we can cultivate in yoga practice, but I would contend that it's probably far and away the least interesting and least useful thing to develop in a yoga practice. It's uh, certainly nice to have flexibility, but um, the th other things we can cultivate like stress relief, like capacity to over time with practice to uh, deal with things that used to be stressful that aren't as stressful anymore, uh, to cultivate a capacity for poise, to just feel better in your body. Uh, all those are infinitely more valuable than flexibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if people want to find me, uh, I am at the yoga studio is MainStreetYogaCenter.org. Uh, as you might imagine, there are lots of Main Street yogas out there, <laughs> as well as also ones that exist and don't exist. So the current one is MainStreetYogaCenter.org. And that's where you can find the yoga studio. And if there are any listeners out there that want to come check us out, I have a promo for you guys. So currently, I don't know when this is going to be released, but we're doing a ramp up opening, which is to say we're uh, increasing classes, increasing teachers in the direction of a November opening. But during that time, you can get unlimited yoga for $60. And as an offer to the Growing Beyond podcast listeners, uh, if you use the promo code growing hyphen beyond, uh, you'll get half price on that. So $30 for unlimited Whoa, yoga until nice. uh, November 1st. That's really sweet. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been a pleasure being here. Well, I'm going to ask you to do it again at some point. So get ready for that. Do you have any more questions? No, I'm, I feel like I, you know, my curiosity for is is settled for the time being. Okay. And your training is based out of here. It's still current happening. Yeah. Training is okay. happening. It's going to be based out of here. We got a, a new start coming up in October. It's exciting. Yeah. It's the best training. I, that's its own podcast. I mean, yeah, we could go really like hours and hours, but I think this is a good start. Thank so, you. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you.